The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. So, hi everyone. You're all very, very welcome, and thank you for joining us at this. Roundtable event. Uh, my name is Kevin Power. I'm assistant professor in the School of English, assistant professor of literary practice. I'm also the evening lectures coordinator. Um, and I want to welcome you all to this roundtable event on fiction and true crime. Um, so in a moment, I'm going to introduce you to our three wonderful panelists. We're extremely lucky to have them. But first, I just want to say uh, a thank you very much indeed to the Long Room Hub for hosting this uh, Zoom webinar. Um, and I also want to thank my colleagues in the school who contributed to this series of online lectures. This is the final event um, in our evening lecture series for 2021 on uh, literature and true crime. And in particular, I want to acknowledge uh, Dr. Bernice Murphy, Dr. Claire Clark, and Dr. Stephen Madison, whose brainchild this particular lecture series was. Um, over the last 10 weeks, the school has presented uh, lectures, uh, public lectures on a range, very wide range of texts on crimes and authors. We've had reflections on the ethics of Truman Capote's non-fiction novel, In Cold Blood, um, John Banville's fictionalization of the murder of Bridie Gargan in the Book of Evidence, Dark Tourism in the London of Jack Ripper, um, a, flan a hidden history of Flan O'Brien in the IRA, and various fictional appearances of Anne Boleyn, among other uh, fascinating topics. Um, so this roundtable event in which we get to talk to two writers who have written novels inspired by true life crimes and to Dr. Eva Burke, whose academic work has focused on both crime fiction and true crime, it caps what I think has been a really wonderful series. I've certainly enjoyed it anyway. Um, and I want to just want to say thank you to everyone who has watched and, and to all of our, our colleagues who've done such an amazing job on their lectures. So just a quick bit of housekeeping. Uh, just to remind everyone watching that this event um, is recorded um, and then just to explain how it's going to run it's always nice to know what's going to happen to you uh, so I'm just going to briefly introduce our three wonderful speakers um, we are then uh, who are each going to speak to the, the topic broadly construed of uh, fiction and true crime for about five minutes apiece um, at that point then um, we'll try and have a kind of general conversation. I'll have some questions jotted down um, and hopefully we'll be able to get conversation rolling on this very interesting topic. We have a, a wealth of experience and knowledge um, in our virtual room on this area. And then towards the end, of course, we'll open it up to a Q&A from, um, from the audience. So if you have any questions, do pop it in the chat or pop it in the Q&A function. I'll be keeping an eye on that as we, as we go along. So without uh, further ado, um, I'm going to introduce our three panelists. Now, uh, Owen McNamee, the author of 19 novels, including six young adult novels and three thrillers under the John Creed pseudonym. He wrote the screenplay for the film of his first novel, Resurrection Man, directed by Mark Evans, and screenplay for I Want You, directed by Michael Winterbottom. He has, among many achievements, been long listed for the Booker Prize um, and has won the Emerson Prize, the Kerry Fiction Prize, and CWA Ian Fleming Steel Dagger. He has taught at Sligo Institute of Technology, Maynooth University, and is now director of the Oscar Wilde Center in Trinity. Um, his latest novel is The Vogue, but for our purposes today, he is uh, very much appearing as the author of Resurrection Man, um, which part fictionalizes the crimes of Clankill Butchers, the Blue Trilogy, which spans from uh, the 1952 murder of Patricia Curran, and 1223, which dramatizes certain aspects of the last days of Diana, Princess of Wales. Um, so Owen is going to talk to all of those, talk about all of those books. Um, we are also joined by Catherine Ryan, Ryan Howard, uh, an Edgar-nominated and best-selling crime writer. Her debut thriller, Distress Signals, was an Irish Times and USA Today bestseller uh, that was published in 2016. The Liar's Girl from 2018 was a finalist for the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Award for Best Novel. Rewind 2019 debuted at number two in the Irish bestseller list and was shortlisted for Irish Crime Novel of the Year. Um, the Nothing Man was published in 2020 on both sides of the Atlantic, inspired by Catherine's own experience of reading Michelle McNamara's 
I will be gone in the dark, just days after Joseph James D'Angelo was arrested and charged with the Golden State Killer crime. This novel is half a fictional true crime memoir and half the killer's reaction to it as he reads. Um, and we're going to plug Catherine's forthcoming novel due in August. It's called 56 Days. It is a lockdown thriller written in lockdown. Um, and hopefully Catherine will tell us more about that. Um, and then we are joined as well by Dr. Eva Burke, um, who has recently completed a PhD funded by the Irish Research Council in the School of English at Trinity under the supervision of Dr. Claire Clark. Eva's PhD research looks at domestic noir fiction, specifically the work of Gillian Flynn. Eva has previously published work in the Journal of International Women's Studies, Feminist Spaces, Trinity Postgraduate Review, and in the 2018 edited collection, From the Domestic to the Dominant, The New Face of Crime Fiction, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Um, she, with Claire Clark, she has co-edited the latest issue of Clues, a journal of protection, and Eva is in talks to publish her doctoral research as a monograph. Her research interests include representations of female experience within crime fiction, true crime narratives, horror, and detective fiction. So welcome to you all, and thank you all very much for joining us. Um, I'm going to throw it over to Owen, um, who is going to uh, talk about his own experiences of fictionalizing true crime, uh, which, which went smoothly, I think, Owen. Did it, did it uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my girlfriend, now wife, read uh, the manuscript of uh, Resurrection Man, um, and she finished it. She read it in an afternoon, and she finished it and said it, it's brilliant, and uh, which was, you know, nice of her to say. But uh, and then she said, "They'll never forgive you," um, which has kind of proved itself somewhere along the line. But the, the, the genesis of of the technique, or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, was trying to find ways to write about the North, trying to find a way in. That wasn't, I suppose, a moralizing allegory, if you like, um, because from my point of view, what I saw was that there, there were no, there was no morals, no moral to be drawn from it, and there was no um, redemption, if you like. Or there was redemption; it was very, very hard won. Um, whereas the kind of the, the what was expected of you was something which was um, where people walked away sadder but wiser, and uh, we all thought um, badly about the bad men who were causing all of this. And I suppose I'm kind of reminded of, of a friend, a painter, Dermot Seymour, who was at art college in Belfast at the time, and apparently jumped up during a lecture in German Expressionism and pointed out the window at some kind of late 70s Belfast mayhem and said, why are we not making art about that? Um, which was the way I was coming. And it took me a long time to find a way into it. But eventually I came across um, Martin Dillon's Shankill Butchers, which was a tale of, of, the, of the Shankill Butchers, who were sectarian and serial killers. Um, who killed people with, with knives, who were uh, imbued with the, I suppose, the, the hateful sectarian spirit of, of the time, but seemed to go beyond it into an almost kind of a, a kind of psychic morass. And the minute I started writing it, the minute I got the first paragraph down, I knew that this was the book. Um, I finished the book, I published it with um, all the names changed, but all the people were the same. You know, you, you could. You could point that you know who who was Lenny Murphy, who was uh, Robert Basher Bates, all, all these people, uh, and you know the book was was well received. The film was, was a kind of interesting experience. And then when I got to the next book, which was the story of Patricia Kern, um, nineteen year old uh, uh, upper middle class girl murdered in nineteen fifty two, and and, and the, the crime has never been solved. I thought well. I mean, going to write this story and change all the names all the way through. I mean, why, why, why would he do that? It seemed, it seemed coy and dishonest. So, like, I wasn't trying to create a, a some kind of subgenre. It was what you say to people starting out to write. The story dictates its way it wants to be told, and 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 you ad adhere to that. So, I, I, I mean, I, I, I did it with uh, with the, the Blue Tango, which was that book, and um, I've never found a killer argument to say that I shouldn't do it. Um, that. The, the, the Blue Tango became a trilogy with two other books. Uh, and then, of course, Kevin mentioned uh, 1223, the Diana book. But I never quite found if it could be called a rational rationality to myself until I realised that, it, it, I woke up one night, I think, it, it's an old-fashioned word, it's a sin. And if I, if I overstepped the mark, if I put words in people's mouths, I put them in situations that they weren't in or couldn't possibly be in, 
then responsibility comes back to me to answer to whoever you answer to for your sins. You know, I, I kind of felt again, it's kind of that putting the writer in, in the position of, of, of moral arbiter in society and, and you're not, that's not, that's not what, what you're there for. Um, you know, I always kind of feel I don't write too far at anyone. Um, the analogy I always come up with was you know, kind, of a, kind of clumsy analogy. It's like if you ever sit in a traditional music session, they play for themselves and you can listen in if you want to. So I write for myself and you can listen in if you want to, but it doesn't, you know, um, that's what I'm doing. And then I got, of course, to um, Kevin told me the other day, which I didn't know that he did. He's a fan of 1223, which was the um, uh, the strange death of Diana Spencer in, um, in Paris. And uh, I had no interest in the subject whatsoever. Um, until I picked, it up, picked up a book in, in a second-hand bookshop, uh, Death of a Princess, which was probably the most authoritative account uh, by two Newsweek journalists. And the atmosphere started to drift off the pages. Um, I'd written a book in, in between, actually, um, uh, about the, the, um, the strange death of, of uh, Robert Nyrak, the British Special Forces officer, um, who um, but is more about the covert war in the North. And I found myself not so much writing that book as falling through it, as finding layers of meaning, which yielded to all layers of meaning, which yielded other layers of meaning, and never quite uh, reached the bottom of, of that particular fall. But this thing reeked of, of conspiracy. It reeked of um, middle European spookery. Uh, and I, I, I remember coming home and saying to, to Marie, you know, sort of, and I started talking about this, and she just looked at me and said, no, don't do it. And I even felt to myself, no, don't do it. Um, it's one of the books that I'm, I'm most proud of. It got the most hostile reception of um, any book I've ever seen anywhere in the English press. Uh, and there's a part of you which kind of says when these things come out and you get that kind of reception that, um, you know, you must be doing something right if you're annoying all the right people. But when you're in the receiving end of it, it's kind of, you know, uh, it, 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 it's, it's not so gentle. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that's the, the way um, I, I find my way to it. I mean, I think the last book, um, The Vogue, again, it answers that, that uh, criteria, if you like, that, um, that the work demands to be told in the way it demands to be told, and, and, and you adhere to that. I remember um, being asked by a, a, a producer who had got money to do this, so I got paid for it. it was, you know, it's always good to get paid when you're freelance as a writer. To write, he wanted to, to, to make a linear film. And I had this argument with him that you can't, you find the story that you want to tell and then you let it dictate its own form. You don't come up with a, with a pre-prepared form and say, right, find a story for that. And I did it because I got paid for it and I did it according to his criteria. And of course, you know, it, it never got off the ground. Um, but that is the, the, the nutshell, if you like, Kevin. Um, Amazing, thank you. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I have I, say I sort of identify with the feeling you, you talk, feelings you talked about with the publication of 1223, I, my own, Similar way when Bad Day and Black Rap came out, I was both both delighted to have kind of caused a frisson and to upset, you know, the, the, the powers that be. But at the same time, I was also devastated and wanted nothing but to be petted and praised. And I think as a writer, you often want to have your cake and eat it in both of those ways. Um, that you both want you want to be the kind of bad boy or girl, and and also to be, you know, told you're you're wonderful. And maybe that's just me. Well, it's, um, it's, it's actually there's, there's more uneasy thing at work, and I think it's because. Um, some part of me seems to kind of create this edge that it brings, you know, and yeah. um, which, is, which is not particularly attractive. And, and particularly when, when you realize at the end that, uh, in general, the blood on the floor at the end of proceedings is not your blood, somebody else's blood. Yeah. Somebody else's blood. We'll come back to that. Thank you very much. That's uh, wonderful. Um, Catherine, um, tell us about the origins of the Nothing Man. Um, right, so <laughs> I've written four novels and all of them, the previous three, were inspired is too strong a word, but they all came from some seed of a real life case or situation. So Distress Signals, which was about a serial killer who 
uh, hunts on a cruise ship because I think that's the best place for a serial killer to get away with it. That was inspired by an article by John Ronson and it wasn't the case. It wasn't the actual cruise ship disappearances he was talking about. It was a phrase, the International Cruise Victims Organization that just stopped me in my tracks because I was like victims of what and why do they need an organization? But the actual novel then was a completely, you know, fictitious plotline. The Liars Girl and Rewind were quite similar in that I just picked up something in an article and ran with it. Then we get to The Nothing Man. So that was very different. It was inspired by my reading of Michelle McNamara's I'll Be Gone in the Dark just a few days after the subject of her book, The Golden State Killer, was arrested and identified. I word that sentence very carefully because it wasn't the Golden State Killer case itself, which I had heard about before and was sort of familiar with. It was the idea of this man spending two months in the world where a book about him is number one on the New York Times bestseller list and is getting all this publicity. We know from when he was active that he paid attention to his own press. He was still living in the area where some of the crimes occurred. I just cannot believe that he didn't know about that book. And how could he resist reading it? And if he did, what was his reaction? Was it like reading about a different person? Was you know, did he feel shame? Did he feel regret? Or was he in some way, you know, reliving past glories? And I became obsessed with this idea. I have never actually been able to prove this, but I am convinced probably around the time of In the Forest, I heard or read Edna O'Brien say, I write as a way to grieve for what I read in the headlines. And I feel like I write as a way to solve the mysteries that I find in them that like real life couldn't give me the answer of whether or not he'd read this book. So I came up with my own one and my argument, although many an Amazon reviewer would disagree, my argument is that, you know, it is fiction. It is fiction. Not only have the names been changed, but he's in Cork. You know, try and be a serial killer in Ireland. It's difficult. Um, he only gets to five. And like all the characters, all the all their stories all the victim stories the setup of the book itself which is you know you're basically reading the book about him over his shoulder I made that up and that's my like safe distance between that book and the real life case like having said that you know I think it's impossible in crime fiction to avoid um, basing things on real life cases. Just in the last few weeks, I've read two proofs of novels that are clearly inspired by Mary Bell. Um, and sometimes, you know, you recognize the inspiration and it's not in the publicity material and the author doesn't acknowledge it. Like there was a very, I won't name any names, but there was a very big book a few years ago that was clearly a kind of explanation for what could have happened to Madeleine McCann and you know I know like myself that's where the author got the idea so if we come at this from a sense of like are we exploiting people's pain are we exploiting anything to me you'd nearly have to wipe out all of crime fiction to be able to say to yourself you know I haven't done that I'm I can't be blamed for that and I think it really has a place because it helps us understand why. It answers the question that real life can't. My sort of dilemma is that I am not a writer of literary fiction. Like I am, I consider myself nearly to be in the entertainment business more than the business of literature. I'm writing first and foremost to entertain. And so I feel like you have to weigh up the cost of the novel. And if it's something like In the Forest, Bad Day at Black Rock, you know, I feel like it's worth, there's a worthiness to that. Um, because the best literary fiction like helps us live. It teaches us how to live and, and how to be in the world. And we get that from novels that answer questions about true crime that real life can't. But for me, I feel like it's not quite worth that for my books and the type of books that I read. So while I would never have the courage to <laughs> write something like in the forest, you know, I was first in the queue for it because as a reader, I'm absolutely attracted 
to those books because I want those impossible questions answered. So that's it. <laughs> that's really, really interesting. I mean, I, w I wonder how many people would, would endorse your, your kind of distinction there. I, I, yeah, about, about sort of the difference between the literary and crime and crime crime fiction ostensibly. I mean, I think they both offer, and I agree with you 100%, I think one of the things that fiction can do that that even the best journalism can't is, is, is fill the, the gaps, the imaginative gaps and give us a why often, mm. um, or even, even make us happier with the lack of a why <laughs> in a funny way. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's totally impossible to draw hard lines between genres, but yeah. years ago I did a course in Faber Academy in London and there was an editor there who said, she was complaining about a very best-selling book, and she said, it taught me nothing new about life. It said nothing new about life. And that's kind of my own personal yardstick, I think, that I'm not, you know, I absolutely believe that genre fiction and the kind of crime fiction I write can also do that while it entertains. But that's not my, that's not what I'm thinking about when I sit down to write. I'm thinking about gluing someone to a couch for longer than is healthy. So <laughs> get <to> the end. <laughs> Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm going to come back to lots of what you said there. Really, really interesting. Um, okay, Eva, I wonder if you might um, talk more about, again, you may not be ready to do this, but if you talk more about that kind of literary genre distinction, I don't know if that's something you're, you're, you're interested in, but... Uh, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a scholar of popular literature, so I spend almost every weekday teaching students that popular fiction is literature. So Catherine, I think you are writing just literature. To be clear, I, it is literature. I didn't mm -hmm. say it was <laughs> um, I in lots of trouble. <laughs> no, no, I know what you're saying, but um, I, I kind of want to jump off your point there, Catherine, about um, how it's almost impossible to write crime fiction without sort of overlapping with real life crime, because I think that's very true. Um, because obviously fiction is about and inspired by the stuff of our lives and unfortunately violence and murder is a part of life. Um, I was thinking today about how far back the kind of narrativization of crime goes and I was thinking about Newgate novels in the 1820s. Um, so they will be sort of um, popular novels inspired by real life criminals like highwaymen or uh, murderers and they were very controversial because they were said to sort of romanticize the horrible deeds that these men were doing um, but you know even authors that we now think of as very respectable like Wilkie Collins um, and Charles Dickens uh, were inspired by real life crime and you know someone like Truman Capote as well so I think it's not a recent kind of phenomenon there is like a huge tradition of this happening um, my own interest in true crime, I would say, I can actually, this is quite strange, but I can actually pinpoint the birth of my interest in true crime. Um, I was about 14 and I was watching TV and I saw Charles Manson on the TV and I'd never heard of him or what he had done before ever. This was the first time. Um, and I was so horrified and scared um, and I had nightmares for days and um, I decided to learn more about it because I reasoned that I would be less scared if I understood it more. Um, and I actually ended up doing my Leaving Cert project on Charles Manson. Um, the teacher was really scared, but I got an A. Um, but that was kind of the origin point of my fascination, um, but with true crime and with kind of, I suppose, making sense of terrible things. As you said, Catherine, um, I think putting them into a narrative is a way of making sense of things that we don't understand and can't understand really um, as outsiders. My work is on domestic noir fiction so a kind of brief explainer would be uh, domestic noir fiction is fiction that is generally set in the home and centers on kind of the dangers of the home in terms of uh, violent spouses, um, domestic abuse, things like that. Um, it's something that I'm very interested in but when I was thinking about this panel and how I could sort of tie in uh, domestic noir to this, um, it kind of struck me that domestic noir novels often aren't based on specific crimes. They sometimes are, but generally um, what they're based on is this sort of pervasive kind of all encompassing overarching violence that women live with. Um, and it, these novels are incredibly popular with women. 
Um, I think one of the reasons they're so popular is because women can really relate to that sort of pervasive kind of microaggression um, or violence in the home. So you might not be, I'm sure most of you will have read Gone Girl or be familiar with it. You're probably not, um, you know, planning to frame your husband for murder, but you might be able to relate to some <laughs> of the, hopefully not, but you might be able to relate to some of those, um, those microaggressions, you know, things like infidelity and small acts of aggression. Um, and I think when I think about true crime kind of narrativized, that's what domestic noir does for me. It gives um, a voice to that pervasive experience. And that's why I think it's so successful. Um, there is a scholar at the University of Sussex called Katerina Hendricks. I don't know if she's watching, but um, she actually has an article in the recent edition of Clues, which uh, Claire and I edited. I'm not plugging it. It's a really good. Uh, it's a really good piece. But she works with uh, her PhD research works with um, female reader groups. They read a domestic noir novel like uh, The Girl on the Train or Gone Girl. And then they talk about why they enjoyed it. Um, her research is really fascinating. But she found that the revenge aspect of those novels is very popular with female readers. Um, they really like seeing bad men get punished. Um, and that's a huge selling point for them. Um, so I think, again, one of the reasons that we do narrativized crime is because we seek justice in a way. Um, and I think we're more aware than ever that, you know, narratives of, of authority can't be trusted and that justice is often kind of elusive. And I think fiction can sometimes give us that when we're not getting it from real life. Um, I'm also quite interested in the idea of uh, the victims that we tend to to lean towards in fiction. Um, I was thinking about the kind of ideal victim and the sort of crimes that um, we sort of culturally obsess over. I mean, I mentioned Manson there and, you know, Sharon Tate is such an icon of, of victimhood in some ways as this very petite, beautiful white woman. Um, I think about John Bonnet Ramsey as well. And one of my, I suppose, issues with domestic noir fiction is that it does center kind of white female victimhood in ways that um, can detract or kind of distract from the reality, or I guess, of violence for certain types of women. Um, now, I was going to recommend a couple of novels that I think I could do it later on that um, I think center uh, experiences of different types of women, but I am quite interested in that idea of uh, the perfect victim and the victim that we are sort of culturally drawn to because I think crime fiction tends to sort of compound that. Um, I know that in terms of domestic noir readership, um, the readers are usually white middle-class women. So I think they're writing for who's buying it and people like to see themselves in what they're reading. Um, but that is something that I would like to think more about. There is um, a Canadian scholar called Catherine Morton who has written on um, missing and murdered indigenous women and how the media kind of frames missing and murdered indigenous women. And her research shows that um, if you go missing as an indigenous woman, you're more likely to have like a mugshot or a sort of um, a photo that frames you in a very unflattering way um, put out to the media. Whereas someone like, I'm thinking of like Lacey Peterson, uh, Shannon Watts, very famous American women, white women who were obviously had terrible, terrible things happen to them, but um, almost kind of a mass, a cult of kind of collective grief um, over not just them, but almost what they represented, sort of white middle-class femininity. Um, so I do think domestic noir, um, one of my issues going forward with the genre, because it's something that I spent four years sort of thinking and talking about, but I'm, I'm not sick of it yet, but I, I do have some issues with it. Um, and that's one of them that I think it can, it can broaden to sort of represent um, the realities of victimization for women. So, yeah. Thank you, that's fascinating. I wonder, I might start with you then, Eva, since you spoke so eloquently just there on this issue. And I, I, you, you've made me talk, maybe a slightly lateral move, but I think it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's associated, which is controversy surrounding the novel American Dirt, um, mm -hmm. which uh, came out last year and was was attacked. Um, I have not read it. I'm going to say that straight away, so I'm not going to offer any judgment novel from my own experience. But it was attacked on the grounds of 
of sort of whitewashing the immigrant experience and making it eligible for um, the illegal immigrant experience, making it eligible for a, for a white audience. And the author, of course, is a white woman. And, Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I wonder is is that a, is that a related issue that there's that there's a need for not just crime fiction but true crime to expand complexify its approach to questions of victimhood agency particularly around women um absolutely yeah i think so um I'm thinking about even people who are the people who are writing true crime as sort of producing true crime still tend to be coming from that sort of white middle class perspective. Um, I was recently excited for the Netflix documentary on Elisa Lam. I don't know if anyone has seen it. Um, an Asian woman who um, had a, a very tragic death in, I think it was Los Angeles. Um, but it was very disappointing because um, it peddled a lot of myths and sort of st- kind of stigmatized mental illness. Um, didn't do a very good job of like going into the complexity actually didn't touch on her race at all really completely skirted around that um so i definitely think there is more a lot more to be done in terms of um i suppose showing the realities of violence for women like there's a novel called these women by ivy pakoda which i'm not sure if you'll have read but i think it does a fantastic job of um i suppose foregrounding victims that you might not be inclined to sympathize with um because they're like sex workers or you know they're not necessarily um they're not victims that the media um want, would want you to sympathize with and i think that true crime should um actually interestingly uh, janine cummins who wrote american dirt actually wrote a true crime memoir before american dirt um right, yeah. which was controversial because um i know i haven't read it um and i'm not 100 percent sure about what the issue was but i know that um it involved a white victim who i think she was related to and Her some brother yeah. yeah some kind of insensitive writing about the perpetrators of the crime so i think actually that's a, she's a good example of what yeah. not to do possibly <laughs> <laughs> a cautionary tale um so i'm gonna I'll, I'll broaden out the, the the discussion a bit um, and i'm going to kind of synthesize what what all three of you have said um into one and i'm going to make a sort of devil's advocate argument um so Catherine, you've mentioned that one of the reasons um, we read crime fiction, we read true crime, is we seek an explanation. We seek a, a why uh, behind, often behind headlines, behind disturbing and, and, and upsetting events that we encounter in the news media. Um, Eva, you've suggested that women in particular often read these books in search of justice, in search of a kind of sense of um, a sense of redress, I guess, for. Mm-hmm. Uh, ambient violence uh, that they live with and then oh and you talked about sin which i think is a really interesting word for a contemporary novelist to use and it's i approve of you using it by the way because i i i i, I believe i believe in sin as a concept without in any way being religious <laughs> I, I kind of believe in it i think it's a useful idea like the soul is another useful idea um but you, you, I think you say you, that you, what you're doing is writing about sin. Owen, would you say that you, in a sense, write to understand sin or to expiate it, or where is? No, is no. Um, Brian McGilloway, the crime novelist, talked about um, the idea that that a crime novel that that there is a disturbance in the fabric of the world, and, and the crime novel puts it right. Um, I'm not really about, I think, kind of explaining anything or putting anything right. Um, you know, so Catherine's talking about, you know. And incidentally, I mean, I, I've, I've sort of no time for a snobbery about kind of you know crime fiction, literary fiction, whatever you want to call it. I mean, there was a while there, I sort of felt that I was kicked out of the literary salon, the, the drawing room into the alley where all the crime writers were, and I kind of preferred fun it there, place. you know. The fun place. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's where, 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 where people smoke, but um, I mean, <laughs> you know, but uh, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm over fond of quoting Francis Bacon saying that the job of all art was to see the mystery. And when I finish a good book or finish a, or a piece of art or a piece of music or whatever it might be, I kind of want to walk away from the feeling I know less about the world than I knew. I, I don't want it. I don't want things answered for me because, mm-hmm. you know, what, 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 what is that answer supposed to be or what, what, what's it supposed to mean? So, I mean, you know, and, and sin is a kind of a, a, a kind of a grandiose concept, if you like, but it's, a, it's the nearest I can come to for my own personal um approach to the thing. I was kind of interested, kind of backtracking with what 
uh, Eva was talking about um, in the Patricia Curran book, The Blue Tango, um, the 19 year old uh, young woman who was murdered, stabbed 37 times on, on the driveway of her house. Her father was a prominent uh, unionist judge. And I mean, but I started off writing about who killed Patricia Curran. It's, it, the crime is still unsolved. It's a, it's a complex tale. Um, and uh, then it became for me about who was Patricia Curran because it's miasma of um, deceit and transgression that descended over and, 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 and aberrant sexuality. She'd been going with older men. She got what she deserved. You know, the kind of thing that, 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 that drifts in um, around these cases. And so in a way, the end of the book is it becomes, if you like, who was Patricia Kern. But the strange thing about that was that um, many years after I'd finished the book, I met a man who was um, kind of at the heart of the North for, for 50 years, the heart of the civil service. Um, had a lot to do with the, the advent of the peace process um, and very good political connections everywhere. And I, I've, I've met him a couple of times in passing. I met him at the um, in Colney Station. He was just getting the train back from Dublin to Belfast, an elderly man at this stage. And he told me that the Blue Trilogy was all concerned the current family. He told me a salient fact about each of the three books. But he told me something about the Patricia Kern um, murder which again, it just deepened the mystery. It just gave it an entire layer of, and I, I can't repeat what he told me because it kind of <laughs> I know, I know, but but all of a sudden, everything I thought I knew about it was, was turned on its head. And it's one of the things about um, engaging in this kind of fiction, it doesn't end for you, kind of things keep coming to you. I mean, in my case, um, you know, I got, got a stalker from that book, Death Threats and Resurrection Man. You know, the, 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 the story keeps going on. Um, uh, but I, I just thought in, 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 in terms of what Eva was saying, and also, you know, in, in Resurrection Man, for instance, there's a kind of parallel narrative about domestic violence. Mm -hmm. uh, in The Ultras, which is a book about the covert war, if you like, there's a parallel narrative uh, about my favourite characters, I think, of all the books, uh, a 14-year-old girl with anorexia. And it becomes about, I, I don't want to explain it, because in the way when you explain it, what you do is, you know, in both books, I juxtapose the two things. Domestic violence and public violence, covert, what is hidden, and an anorexia. Put the two of them together, and allow them to find their own organic connection. So you know, to, to explain them is to is to you know, is, is to work against the purpose of the books, if you like. Um, I I really like um, you you kind of verbalise there this idea that I have, which is that a crime writer and a writer of true crime should be like a necromancer almost, like you should you should be resurrecting the victim sort of and fleshing them out for us. And I think that the best crime fiction does that and true crime as well. Um, so it's not just about, you know, who killed Mary, it's about Mary. You know what I mean, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, something, you know, I mean, I, 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 to claim the book's changing or fiction changes anything, you know, I, I, I don't mm -hmm. think, you know, that, that if you like the trajectory of the book does it, but sometimes mm -hmm. the existence of art about something changes it because once you say something, it can't be unsaid. And if you say it in that particular way, it, it, it can't be unsaid. But to think that you can steer, you know, kind of um, uh, public events through, through a piece of fiction doesn't, doesn't really cut it. I want to, I want to play devil's advocate and, and go back to a phrase of Owen's, which you, you ended your, your, your initial uh, chat with, which is there's blood on the floor but at the end of the day, it's somebody else's blood. And this is the ethical question. And you both, all three of you actually in, in, in different ways have, have kind of approached this question. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna play devil's advocate and say that, that it is egregious, in fact, to fictionalize, to, to render, in, in, to, to make worse possibly, or to, to alter or to change something that, that people involved in it may consider sacred. So how do you, as writers, Catherine, I might go to you on this, and, and then uh, Owen, how do, you, how do you rationalize that? Um, and then Eva, I might ask you, um how do you think we rationalize that culturally how do we mm. how do we how do we square the ethics of true crime both true crime and and uh, you know crime fiction so Catherine just in my own personal work I get away with having being able to avoid this question because I <laughs> have convinced myself you know it's entirely fictitious and I think that I sort of I I know like it, in some way I went out of my way to kind of quote unquote do good with the book to make up for any 
exploitation of pain like one of the things in the nothing man that i really wanted to do was dispel these ridiculous misconceptions about serial killers that most people have thanks to the more exploitative blood splattered true crime of past decades and netflix and stuff like that so i really tried to as Eva said, like foreground the victims Mm -hmm. um, and paint Jim, who is the nothing man. And that's not a spoiler because you find that out on the blurb. Um, I wanted to paint him as a complete and utter loser, essentially, who the only thing of note he's ever done is is take innocent lives because most most readers, I think, have this idea of serial killers as Hannibal Lecter, you know, a connoisseur, an intellectual, able to control events from outside his prison cell. Um, spoiler alert, that's not what serial killers are like on the whole. So I kind of, because I was thinking about this earlier, because I knew you were going to ask me and I have no good answer. So I think that's what I've done is I've sort of built myself a moat of deniability when I take these real life cases by by changing them enough um but I did with this I obviously admit where the the story came from which is reading that book I think it's as a reader it's something you have to ask as well because I am like I am absolutely drawn to novels that are based on true crime cases and I don't know like one of the things I was thinking about and I think it it was mentioned in one of our pre-panel emails was time And if you are writing about something that has just happened and the pain is fresh and the wounds are raw, that's a very different situation than, you know, writing about something that happened years before. I don't know what the answer is, to be honest. Um, Again, like I mentioned earlier, cost. Like I was listening to an interview with um, an author recently who was talking about interviewing victims of, Um, domestic violence for their novel which in my mind is you know like I didn't think that was worth it I didn't think it was worth asking these women to relive the most traumatic thing that had ever happened to them in order for her to produce this novel the other side of the coin is isn't it better to do that and portray you know what happened to them accurately I just don't know. Basically, it's a minefield and you would have to ask yourself, why do we write novels in the first place? I just would also like to say to pick up on Eva's point about, you know, middle class white women. One thing that very rarely comes up in discussions about the proliferation of middle class white women in crime fiction is publishing. Publishing Mm -hmm. is dominated by university educated middle class white women and we react to stories we can relate to. So when they're going through the manuscripts or the agent is going through the slush pile, they're identifying with stories about women like them. And then those are the stories that are getting published. So when we think about Janine Cummins and um, American Dirt and things like that, you know, she got to tell that story and she got the seven figure book deal and the publicity and everything else, probably because of the machinery of publishing that produced that book, which didn't react in the same way to the Mexican immigrant who had written her own story. So I think we always have to remember that publishing is is largely responsible for the books we see on the shelf. It's not like we all have an equal chance of getting published. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really important point. Um, what I, I, I want to throw the question then back to Owen, the ethical question. And I, I, Owen, I know that you probably didn't lose too much sleep about possibly upsetting the royal family. Um, but, <laughs> for example, the family of Robert Nyrak, the family of Patricia Curran, these are, for want of a better word, you know, civilians. They're not people in the public eye necessarily. Um, they are um, potentially going to be upset by by your book. Uh, I mean, how do you square that? How do you do you do you rationalize that to yourself? Do you? Or do you think the writer has a license to, to write what he or she wants to write? You know, it, 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 I don't even know if, if it's a question that, that I really put to myself whether a license or not. You know, I'm, I'm back to, to the sinning again. You know, <laughs> I'm really, <laughs> quite honestly. Um, but I mean, the, the book I'm working on now, I don't often talk about um, what I'm working on, but, but um, <clears throat> I've told this story before, so in different circumstances. So 
Um, a guy I knew called uh, Paddy Farrell, who was a serious career criminal. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I met him through a web of criminality and, and violence that was, uh, along the border that, you know, that, that I lived through. <clears throat> uh, I remember myself and Paddy driving along the, the, the Keys in Dublin going past the four courts, <clears throat> and I was a 20-year-old law student in Trinity. He dropped me off outside Trinity, and we were joking, you know, in sort of 10 years' time, I'd be in four courts wearing a wig, and he'd be the, the defendant. But he was, he was, was a serious criminal. Um, but, but eight, nine years after that, it was a bit longer, um, Paddy was in a house in Drogheda with his 29-year-old girlfriend. He was 49 at the time. Uh, he had a wife and, and family in Uri, and uh, they were ostensibly engaged in some sort of killed sex game. He was on the bed, naked, masked, and uh, she took out a shotgun and, and shot him in the head and then shot herself. Um, that's the story I'm writing and, and the, the web of criminality and uh, transgression and violence and death that, that, that was involved in, in that story and the spin-off from it. Um, haven't been up in a while because of the, the, the lockdown, but any time I'm traveling from, say, Dublin up to Newry, up to Belfast, I go to the graveyard where my parents are buried, sort of go up and uh, pay my respects. And uh, Paddy's buried by coincidence, um, about 10 feet away. So I kind of, you know, I've gone over to the grave a couple of times and kind of contemplated this. And, you know, he has a family. So, you know, it's kind of, um, his, his children will be growing up now. Um, and I don't know what to say about that, but I'm writing it because the, you know, you can say on one level the material is too good, but also, I mean, in the sense of being witness to something. Um, how can you not write about it? Um, and there's something dreadfully unwholesome about the whole thing, I think. Um, but yet, uh, it, 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 it's utterly compelling, you know. And I mean, are, are you back to the old sort of Graham Greene thing, you know, the, the, the sliver of ice in, in every writer's heart? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't, I can find, if you like, relatively glib justifications for writing about Nairac or writing about Patricia Kern or, or the Shangle Butchers. Um, I'm not really even reaching or trying for any glib justification for this. I don't, I don't know what it is, or even if the word justification has any real meaning in it. It's there to be written about and I'm writing about it, and that's all I can say. Um, so, you know, I always find that I always have trouble finding material and, and I, I, until I come across stories which demand to be told in some way by, by their, their existence. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's almost, as I say, it's a logical conclusion of the books I've been writing, that, that, that you reach the intimacy of, of and, and, and privacy, if you like, of, even though, I mean, it was, it was a, a, a quite notorious crime at the time. Um, yeah, I mean, do, what, what do I say about, about Paddy? You know, he was a serious criminal. Does that justify me putting him in this position? I don't know. I, I, to be honest, Kevin, I don't, I don't really have a, have a proper answer for it. But, but you're so eloquent <laughs> about it, nonetheless. Um, and and I, I think it's interesting that there seems to me to be a persistent, sorry about this, but a persistent use of religious language in the way you, in the way you talk about these, the telling of these stories, you talk about witness, you talk about sin. Uh, and that's really interesting to me because it resonates with me. I think that there is a, 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 an aspect of, of meaning making. Um, and, you know, a story is there. It is not anyone's property. And I don't, it, this may be my own glib justification, but I, I, I believe, I also believe that it's true that there is no, uh, there's no, no one can claim prior ownership of a story. The story is there. And especially if it happens to you um, or happens near you, if you are you know, near to it. Um, so that's what you, that's, that's what, what, do you what do you think, Catherine? What do I think? <laughs> I mean, I totally agree that no one has ownership over a story. And I also think like this is all these, these sort of, if we made rules for ourselves, and we made like conditions that are acceptable and are not, they mm -hmm. would instantly dissipate anytime we moved. Because if I say, you know, stories are, are there and anyone can write them, like there's so many novels which are based on exactly the same story and then create two different narratives out of them because the execution is so different. I mean, I think it's quite telling that we don't really have an answer to, is this right or wrong? Like, I think, 
this is fiction. This is something that even if we take real events, we're adding something invented and created too. And I totally identify with what you said about like, you know, you have to write it. How can you not write it? That's absolutely how I felt about The Nothing Man. This Because I when I'm writing, I'm always trying to make something new I get bored very easily and I'm a master procrastinator so I'm always trying to like find a way into the book that will keep me entertained first and foremost and so when I had this idea of the memoir and the the killer reading it over to the killers I couldn't I couldn't leave that there I couldn't it had to be written so I think like we're all just not worrying about <laughs> Just or not. I mean, I'm interested to hear from Kevin how his ex. I know he's supposed to be asking us, but how you felt about backlash, maybe too strong a word, but like, how do you feel about Bad Day in Black Rock? I wouldn't write it now. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, no, I wouldn't. And I wouldn't write it in the same way. And yet at the same time, I've got a book that's just about to come out, which this is an accidental plug. I didn't mean to plug it, but there it is. And it is partly inspired by certain news stories about certain Irish bankers. Um, who may or may not be easily identifiable in the book, but that's by the by. But I haven't, I haven't learned anything. But at the same time, yeah, I think that now that I, I was 26, I wrote that book, Bad Day, and I had the ethical freedoms, let's say, um, of a 26-year-old um, who doesn't fully, I think, yet, like, certainly I didn't fully yet grasp that the weight, just the weight of certain things that can happen, loss, you know, you know, violence. I know, I think I know a bit more about those things now, which maybe what I mean is if I said I wouldn't write it now, I would approach it more delicately. And I approached it as obliquely as I could. I gave it a narrator who was, you know, reflecting on it. It's as distanced as I can manage it. Um, but still, yeah, I think I would, I would, I would tiptoe up to it a bit more delicately now that I'm nearly 40. Um, I want to go to Eva and ask about, before we, I'm going to open it up to Q&A in sort of two minutes. Um, so Eva, your most pithy eloquence, please. Um, if you, um, uh, if you I, could apply the, the same question, Larry, the ethical question to, I guess, how we consume or how we think about that true crime narrative. Yeah, I don't think there is an easy answer or an answer really uh, as to whether it's ethical. Um, the book that always sticks in my mind when I have this conversation um, is a book by Leila Slimani called Lullaby which came out a few years ago, a French novel, um, really well written, uh, really good, but based on a case in New York of a nanny who murdered the children she was caring for. Um, and the book came out and she got a ton of prizes and adulation um, while the court case was ongoing. Um, so Jocelyn Ortega, the woman who had committed this crime, was on trial as it was happening. Um, as the book was sort of ha publicly happening. And um, I think it was Catherine, I think I had a conversation with you at the, at the time, a couple of years ago about my discomfort with that novel and it, it upset me. Um, and I couldn't really articulate why it upset me um, so deeply, just the thought that this woman was, was gaining a lot of success from this narrative that, like, I mean, as you've said, the story didn't belong to anyone. You, you were allowed to take narrative possession of things. Um, but something about, I think, just the closeness of it in terms of time, a lot of time had not passed. Um, Do you think it could be related to success? That like, if the novel hadn't done very well, it wouldn't I mean, be so exploitative maybe? I think that's possibly part of it. Like I know writers, I'm sure you all know, writers don't obviously don't make tons of money and aren't, you know, massively financially successful from writing generally. Um, but <laughs> thanks for reminding us. <laughs> Sorry, um, I'm an academic, so you know, um, it's all it's all relative. But um, I, yeah, I think that could have been a factor. And she she talked about it. Lady Savannah did talk about it a little in interviews, and she talked about other cases that she had also drawn on. So maybe that makes it okay. I'm not I'm not sure. Um, in terms of how we kind of culturally make these narratives palatable. I think true crime has become very classy. Um, these days, true crime documentaries and podcasts are very well produced. Um, and they're mu a much easier sell, I think, to a middle-class audience in a way that true crime from the 80s and 90s um, probably wasn't. You know, you, you don't really get books with Ted Bundy on the cover anymore. Um, they're usually mu much more abstract. And I think 
certain types of people are more inclined to pick them up and possibly read them on the train or whatever. Um, so I, th I think we have dressed true crime up a little bit. I'm not sure if that's a good thing. Um, for I, I, I know we're kind of out of time, but I, I do think that we tend to take uh, those kinds of documentaries very seriously. And I think sometimes that can actually affect like ongoing cases and has done um, and like the narratives around certain crimes. But OK, sorry, I'll stop now. No, wonderful. Thank you. Um, I, I, I could listen to you talk about this all day. Um, well, I'm going to go quickly to the Q&A. Um, some wonderful questions. And thank you for everyone for posting them. And I'm sorry I can't get them all. But I, there's a few, there's two or three that kind of ask roughly the same questions. I'm going to synthesize one question out of that. Um, and I'm going to use uh, uh, our wonderful colleague, Claire Clark, has asked, how does the panel feel about the centrality of the dead beautiful girl in crime fiction and true crime? Do you observe a change in recent true crime or I suppose crime fiction, I, I might add myself, uh, towards a more victim-focused approach. We talked about this a bit already, but I, I wonder if we might um, go uh, respond to it a bit more. Are things changing? Um, I yeah, I recently read um, a true crime book. It came out a couple of months ago. It's called We Keep the Dead Close by Becky Cooper. Um, a really fantastic kind of memoir slash true crime a book about a murder at Harvard in the 1960s and um, goes into a lot of detail about kind of the sexist atmosphere at the time for female academics and does I think does a really good job of like of resurrecting the victim of that crime who was kind of lost to time her name wasn't even remembered um, generally it was it was a story that people told and passed on but her name wasn't really central the victim wasn't really central and I think Becky Cooper um, does a really good job of like centering her. So I think that's a sign that um, we are moving forward, I think, with these narratives. I mean, the, 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 the Blue Tango, you know, the murder of Patricia Kern, I mean, it has that, if you like, the, the, the motif of, of, of the dead girl. And, you know, it, it, it's deliberately meant to, the title is deliberately meant to echo the, the Black Dahlia and mm -hmm. the whole idea of, of noir. I mean, I don't know if the, if the, the, the shape that the book took where it became about, and as I was writing it, it became about who Patricia was, uh, whether that rescues it, if you like. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't there. Somebody offered a prize last year for, for a crime novel which didn't feature a, a negative yes. girl, you know, didn't start you off. You mentioned it in the, in the questions, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah the staunch yeah. so, prize. Um, but I just, I, actually, as we were talking there, I was, I was thinking about it, but I mean, the only physical feature of Patricia Curran that I, that I write about, and that this wasn't delivered, were her eyes, you know, so, um, yeah. Again, you know, it, it, I mean, it should, people should respond to the victim more. What part of, of, of crime writing uh, brings that about and why people buy books is a sort of different question, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny because I was, as I was kind of preparing for this, I, I was reflecting on the fact that I was thinking about the Book of Evidence, John Banville's great novel, but I was also reflecting on the fact that it, it gets talked about as the Freddie Montgomery case, um, <laughs> but not the Bridie Gargan case often. Um, that, 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 you know, I, I, I was wondering if, if Banville, in providing such a beautifully eloquent voice for a kind of fictionalized version of, 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 a, of, a, of a killer, had, had in some ways, uh, and if you, I think if you go back and read that, I, I, you know, I haven't looked at it in a long time, so I don't know. I wonder if 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 that novel um, it can be it might be slightly problematic in the way that it that it emphasizes his perspective over hers. I don't know. Maybe that's you know. Again, I'm I'm I'm. I, I think that these days, like audiences are becoming a lot, our readers, I should say, are becoming a lot less tolerant mm. of the main female character having rigor mortis by the end of page one, and I think. <laughs> that a change from within that's happening is the fact that there are all these female crime writers, you know, dominating the genre. And I think it's something like 60% of the readership is female as well. So I feel like we're, without thinking too much about it, we're changing it from within. I have um, a scene in The Nothing Man where the writer of the memoir goes to visit um, a professor I think it's been a while she could just be <laughs> she might maybe shouldn't make professor yet but she is 
she talks about she's you know talking about serial killers and she asks the class to name as many serial killers as they can and they all do and then she says okay now name me their victims and no one can like they might have a sort of grasp of half a name from one of Ted Bundy's and that that was me like that came from my own personal experience of true crime which I got into in the 90s with you know when I was way too young to be looking at these things but I was renting all the made for tv American movies on VHS like the Menendez brothers and um Beshi Broderick and all this really I don't know what my parents were up to but that's what I was doing and you know that's like that has all gone away now and I think we're all realizing collectively that the the person we should be focusing on is the loss the victim and not the the guy who who did it because you know he's not worth absolutely well put I'm afraid we are out of time thank you to three wonderful panelists I really really enjoyed that I hope everybody else did too and we could go on a lot longer I think Thank you to everyone who uh, attended and who put their wonderful questions in the comments. Um, and thank you to the Long Room Hub again. Um, so this brings uh, to an end our series of evening lectures. So I think we couldn't have ended on a better note. But thank you very much again so much to Owen McNamee, Dr. Eva Burkhan, and Howard Catherine. Uh, lockdown novel out soon. Owen's... I have it, have it right here. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> and we are awaiting Eva's monograph and Owen's novel in progress all right thank you just, very uh, much. congratulate kevin on his own novel white city which yeah. is uh, was oh, my you. lockdown novel and also more importantly on, also, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> more importantly on the birth on the birth of his uh of his baby son if you I, yeah we have a four week old at home right now Aww. um so i gotta go i gotta go back to parenting uh once this is over <laughs> Um, the Hub again, is a community. Men's right. book and print cartridges, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral Sands. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.